Our scripture reading today comes from verses in Exodus 13, 1 to 3, and 17 to 22. Please follow along with me as I read. The Lord spoke to Moses, set apart to me every firstborn male, the first offspring of every womb among the Israelites, whether human or animal, it is mine. Moses said to the people, remember this day on which you came out from Egypt, from the place where you were enslaved, for the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand, and no bread made with yeast may be eaten. When Pharaoh released the people, God did not lead them by the way to the land of the Philistines, although that was nearby. For God said, lest the people change their minds and return to Egypt when they experience war. So God brought the people around by the way of the desert to the Red Sea, and the Israelites went up from the land of Egypt prepared for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the Israelites solemnly swear, God will surely attend to you, and you will carry my bones up from this place with you. They journeyed from Sukkot and camped in Etam on the edge of the desert. Now the Lord was going before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them in the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light, so that they could travel day or night. He did not remove the pillar of cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from before the people. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, John. John and Tammy will be joining, approved by the members, this afternoon at 11.30. And John uh, leads Chosen People Ministries here in this region, uh, reaching the Jewish people for Christ. So appreciate your ministry. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you and thank you for your word. We thank you for your faithfulness throughout the generations. And Lord, as we come to Exodus 13, we're reminded yet once again, you are the sovereign God who calls for all to bend their knees before you. You are the one who holds the hearts of kings, pharaohs, presidents in your hand. You are the one who defies all odds, overcomes any obstacle that might be placed before you. And you, O oh God, are the one who has stated, I love you. I have called you by name. And so, Father, we thank you. Guide us as we go to the text today. Thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Exodus 13. If you've been just recently joined us, or if this is your first Sunday to CBF, we are walking through the life of Moses over the summer months. We will resume our uh, study of the Gospel of Luke this fall, starting in September. But for now, we're, we're moving through the life of Moses, and it has been a good study. I hope it has been for you. I, I just love rehearsing some of these texts that we don't often look at from the pulpit or in, in the classroom, and so it's just good to rehearse these beautiful truths nestled in the Old Testament. Memory. You know, there's an old saying that states, if, if you want your children to remember you, leave them out of the will. <laughs> 
they'll remember you. You know, humanly speaking, uh, we are defined and we are certainly enhanced by our capacity to form and transmit personal memories, aren't we? And particularly to our children, to, to hand down the family story of who we are and where we've come from. My mom loves scrapbooking, and she just completed two, not one, but two books on the Hoffitt's family, and so she's got photos, but these anecdotal stories, and uh, it's just marvelous to read through, and uh, there aren't too many horse thieves, which is good, but you read through these, uh, the stories of Wilhelm Friedrich Hoffitt's, and, and on the list it goes, and to see God's faithfulness through the years in our family. Memories have the capacity to alter our feelings, change our worldview, and perception of the realities that surround us. Chapter 13 of Exodus is a transition. As the Israelites move from slaves to sojourners, they are given specific instructions. And the Lord says, I want you to remember a few things. Not only what just has occurred, but what I promised in the past, and, and as you go forward, what you need to recall regularly, annually, frequently. And he ties this, the Lord ties this with various feasts. And when we read 13, there's the unleavened bread, there's the dedication of the firstborn, and the, there's the Passover. And we'll talk about these this morning and how they connect but one scholar writes, the feast of Israel were the ritual expression of its life as a community of God's people. Through the feast, listen to what the scholar states, Yahweh or the Lord's faithfulness in the past became the ritual basis for the hope they held in the future. Memories, nothing more than memories. Uh, they're, they're more than memories. The, these are markers that, that are being established. And, and 13, chapter 13 of Exodus is that transition where we're going to set some markers up so that as we go to the promised land, you'll recall these things. 13 ends, as John just read, of us on the precipice of getting to the Red Sea, and that's what we'll look at next week. It's a powerful scene. But we've got some things that the Lord wants to establish in the lives of the people before we get there. So let's look at chapter 13, verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses again, and he says, Sanctify to me every firstborn male. Whatever opens every womb among the families of the Israelites, whether, notice this, whether human or animal, the Lord states, it's mine. I have claims on it. And lest you forget, the tenth plague was the death of the firstborn for those who did not put the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. That not only included the Egyptians, it included the Israelites. And so, if you're taking notes, or you're looking there before you, the firstborn signifies the, the center and the future of the family. In fact, to consecrate the firstborn is to consecrate the family. This is the head. And by requiring the firstborn, what is the Lord saying? I have claims over this entire family. I'm in charge. You dedicating this is, is a way of, I'm saying I'm in charge. It explains a little bit why God was so upset with Pharaoh. Pharaoh tried to play the father of the Israelites. He's the one who dictated what should happen to their sons. Kill them in the, the Nile. This is what you're going to do. And Riken in his commentary states, not only was this a vicious attempt at genocide, 
on the part of Pharaoh, but it was also a rejection of God's paternal rights. Pharaoh was attempting to take God's prerogative. I love what Moses writes in Deuteronomy. He states, is not your father your creator who made you and formed you? Wow. This is why abortion is such an offense to the Lord. <laughs> he is the creator of all things. We are attempting to play God in this process, and God's saying, no, 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 no. I'm in charge. After all, men and women are not only created in the image of God, but everything we have, including our lives, are under God's control. And as these Israelites start out, God's saying, I'll take your firstborn. Because I want you to be reminded continually, I'm in charge. I was reminded of the story. This, this lady was on a, she was taking a flight. Uh, she'd gotten to the airport, and she made a point to purchase a package of her favorite cookies, Oreo vanilla, you know the kind, double stuffed. And so she had the packet in the bag of, you know, you don't get fed on a plane anymore. So she's got this bag of goodies uh, and those, those cookies there. She sits down to wait for the plane, and she starts hearing this rumbling. She saw this elderly man sit beside her. Oh, he seems so sweet. And she heard this rumbling, and she looks over, and he's opening those vanilla Oreo cookies. She's like, are you serious? Those are mine. But she didn't, want to, she didn't want to be rude, and she said, you know, I go to CBF, so I want to represent Christ well, so I'm trying to be nice, and what do I do? So she thought, he's not having eaten all of those. So she grabs in and grabs a few. He, he smiles and grabs a few more, and I mean, they're eating these cookies, and well, it's time for her to board. And she goes, of all the mitigated gall that he would eat my cookies. And so she gets on the plane, she puts the bag on the overhead bench, she goes, oh, I need my iPad. She reaches in, and there is her cookies unopened. <laughs> she wasn't, he wasn't eating her cookies, she was eating his cookies, right? <laughs> you know, we laugh, but similar to this individual with the cookies, we can be so easily offended, upset, or have this title or a sense of entitlement when ultimately none of this is ours. It's the Lord's, right? I think a sense of entitlement is plaguing our country this day. And I think everything belongs to the Lord. Who are you before an almighty God? And thus, it should not be a surprise that the Lord, in this section, it will begin with the firstborn, it will end with the firstborn there in, in the latter part of, well, 17 through 20. It bookends this section because it's a reminder to the Israelites, don't forget, I'm in charge. I am who I am. <laughs> As we go from here, may you not forget, this is who I am that is leading you. And not only that, the Lord not only gives them the firstborn ritual. In verse 3, he says to the people, Remember this day in which you came out of Egypt from the place where you were enslaved. For the Lord brought you out, and no unleavened bread will be eaten. He says, there's a festival we're going to remember, and that's called the Passover as the angel passed over, the angel of death, those that had the marking of blood, this, this spring festival is to recall what God did for them in Egypt. It's a call to remember. 
And that is a loaded term in the Old and the New Testament. It echoes the Lord's own recollection and commitment to his covenant with his people. From a human perspective, remembrance in the Old Testament served as a basis for worship. I love Psalm 42. These things I remember. I pour out my soul as I go to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Why? Because I remember what God has done for me, and I, I, I mustn't forget it. Again, the New Testament is loaded. If, if, just let me give you a, a brief theology of remembrance in the New Testament. There are several points here. Several times we're, we're called to remember in those books. The word of the Lord, we're called to remember. The teachings of Scripture, Mark 8. Recall the words of the Lord. The disciples are instructed. Not only are we told in the New Testament, remember the word of the Lord, we're told to remember what the Lord has accomplished. 2 Thessalonians 2, remember that Christ is raised from the dead. So it's not just what he says, but what he's done. Elsewhere in the New Testament, we're told to remember where you were before salvation. Remember Revelation chapter 3 to the church at Ephesus? You've lost your warm, fuzzy feeling as a follower of the Lord? Then you need to go back and remember what Christ has done for you. Also, we're told to remember that peace and security comes from Christ. Matthew 28, 20 in the Great Commission, remember that the Lord is always with us until the end of the age, right? So there's a call to remember the peace and security that comes from Christ. Another point of remembrance in the New Testament is our fellow saints, especially those who are suffering. Six times, Paul will mention in his various letters, remember the saints. Leaders and examples are, and their examples, another point of remembrance in the New Testament. Hebrews 13, remember your leaders, consider the outcome of their life, and imitate their faith. And finally, there's a call to remember the poor and the needy. Galatians 2 is one that calls for that. And so the, this theme of remembrance is seen throughout the Old and the New Testament. And as we are on the precipice of a promised land and all that that entails, the Lord says, do not forget. <laughs> remember what I have done. And so we're going to have an annual event called a Passover. This is why communion is so important to the church. It's a, a period in which we remember what Christ has done for us on the cross. Well, look at what they are to remember in verse 3. He says that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand. This will be repeated four times in chapter 13. God's mighty hand. In other words, you didn't do anything to get out of this mess. <laughs> Moses didn't help you. Aaron didn't help you. Pharaoh didn't have a change of heart. I'm the one who got involved. I'm the one who brought you out. And out of Egypt, it will occur six times throughout this chapter as well. A reminder, that's where you came from, but this is where I'm taking you. And so a reminder, this is the Lord who has acted. And so you, you have the, the dedication of the firstborn, you have the Passover, yet there's also something called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And let me show you how these tie together. Look at verse 6. For seven days you will eat unleavened bread, no colonial. And on the seventh day there is to be a festival for the Lord. That's the Passover. 
So you have the seven days of unleavened bread, and on the seventh day, you will celebrate the Passover. Why? It's, an, again, a recollection of what God has done, right? Verse 7, the unleavened bread must be eaten for seven days. No bread will seem for you, nor will there be leaven seen within any of your homes or your borders. And you are to tell your children on that day, it is because of what the Lord has done for me. So when they want a peanut butter and jelly sandwich on nice colonial bread, you say, ah, there's nothing. Uh, we don't have any of uh, that bread in the house. It's why? Let me tell you that story. And so this festival, this unleavened bread and then the, the Passover is all part of this process. A sacrifice is made, obviously, on the Passover. As for the firstborn, how does that fit into this equation? Some Jews today practice what's called the fast of the firstborn, which is part of this seven-day process. In fact, it's the day before they do the Passover. But the dedication of the firstborn is seen throughout the year, not just confined to the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. That's an ongoing process, and it's usually done at that 30-day mark when the child is born. There'll be then the dedication and the redemption that is needed, which we'll get to. And so these events, God is establishing for them to remember. And still, even today, they're, they're observed. I've always said, do not go to Jerusalem during Passover. <laughs> You'll, it's crazy. You don't do that. Right? It, it's so busy. There's people everywhere. And, and the, the whole country shuts down because these Jews are still observing this event to recall what God has done for them. Well, eight and nine, the Lord says, not only that, I want you to, to put this on your forehead, between your eyes. That's what verse nine says. Between your eyes, so the law may be on your mouth, for the mighty hand of the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. Later, this is taken literally, and you have the phylacteries that the Jews will place, the box here on the forehead, as well as wrapped around the arm, and it's a literal sense of remembering on the arm and on the forehead. But most scholars would argue this is a metaphorical sense what is he asking? A continual reminder. It is on the forefront. Like a migraine headache, you're not going to forget it. <laughs> it's constantly there that I am the one who have brought you through this. Well, he repeats this, doesn't he? This, this land that I have brought, the Lord does in this passage. And notice what he says, the firstborn in verse 12 he says, you must give over to the Lord everything that opens the womb. We come back to that theme. Every firstling of beasts that you have, the males will be the Lord. Every firstling of a donkey you must redeem with a lamb. Why? It's unclean. They might be valuable animals, but they're unclean animals. You have to do the same for human beings. Isn't that ironic? The, the donkeys needed to be redeemed, and so do the firstborn human beings. There has to be a sacrifice made for them as well. Later, there's, you can donate money, but or a sacrifice. One scholar writes, listen to this, he says, God places his people in the same category as donkeys. <laughs> this showed them that they were sinners in need of salvation. In a word, they needed to be redeemed. And that is the first time in chapter 13, verse 13 in Exodus, it's the first time that word occurs in the Bible, that they must be redeemed. They must be 
atone for. Otherwise, they would perish as the donkey did because they are unredeemed. Later, the law will state you can provide five shekels in redemption, but the bottom line is redemption must take place. Something must be given up so that life can be secured for this firstborn. Significant, isn't it? As I mentioned, this is the first time the word redeem occurs here in 1313, indicating the Lord's graciousness as revealed by allowing a substitute. The Lord didn't have to do that. He said, just go ahead and kill the donkey. In fact, the text tells us if there's nothing that can be done, look what the text says, and if you do not redeem it, then you what to the donkey? Break its neck. And that is a pain in the neck, but it's done. Oh, that's bad. You know that was coming. Just seeing if you're awake. It reminds us, doesn't it, of the New Testament. How are we redeemed? By the Lamb of God. When John the Baptist was starting his ministry and Jesus appears, what he said? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who brings us redemption. In one commentary it says the effect of understanding the Old Testament Passover traditions in light of the New Testament is to affirm the hope of Israel in so far as it foreshadows God's true redemption God's redemption is not simply a political liberation from an Egyptian tyrant but involves the struggle with sin and evil and the transformation of our lives what is the bottom line God is saying I'm in charge you bend your knee before me that's the bottom line 1 Peter 1, you know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. No wonder the great Princetonian scholar of the 1800s, early 1900s, B.B. Warfield states, there is no title from Christ which is more precious to the Christian heart than that of Redeemer. It gives expression not merely to our sense that we have received salvation from him, but also to our appreciation of what it cost him to procure this salvation for us. <laughs> and so, there must be a Redeemer. There must be a process for the unclean. And again, the donkey is just one example. We also fall into that category that needs redemption. And so we see, and, and there's some similarities from the first part of chapter 13 to the latter part of 13. There's this continual reminder of dedicating the firstborn, the unleavened bread, and the Passover. It's not a coincidence. In fact, you, you look at the similarities between the two sections of this chapter. When the Lord brings you out of Canaan is repeated twice. The mention of the land promised by God is repeated twice. A religious observance, as we saw, is repeated twice. The son asking his father, what is this all about, is repeated twice. And both the dedication of the unfirstborn all have these reminders. In other words, this re repetition is important. God only needed to say it once, but he says it a second time. Kind of reminds me, remember the first overnight and your, your mom says, now you did pack your toothbrush and she goes through that laundry list. This is kind of the Lord saying, okay, I'm about to take you to this area. Let me remind you of a few things. But unlike your mom, who's uncertain whether you're gonna use the toothbrush or not, the Lord knows. He is in charge. 
And so we see that in verses 17 through 22. And let's just look at this. It says, when Pharaoh released the people uh, to verse, yeah, 17 is fine. When, when Pharaoh released the people, God did not lead them on the way to the land of the Philistines. Now you say, wait a minute, it's not the Philistines at that point. They don't come on. That people group doesn't appear for another 200 years or so. It's known as that by the time of this writing. And so it's used in, in that fashion. But although that was nearby, for God said, lest the people change their minds when they experience war and return to Egypt. And so God led the people around to the way of the wilderness. So God is saying, hey, I'm, I'm gonna take you, and this is the route we're going. Now we've got a map here to show you, I hope, oh, wonderful, good job. And there are three ways they could have gone. The way of the Philistines is that top northern along, in fact, it's called the coastal highway, the, the Via Maris later by the Romans. And it, it's, it's the path you would have expected. It's the easiest path. Yet, it's also probably the most difficult path that they would need to take because that is where the, the, the Egyptians had garrisons, fortresses all along the way. This is a military zone. This was a buffer zone for the Philistines, for any, excuse me, for the Egyptians, for any groups coming through. But it is the most obvious path, the way of the sea or the way to the land of the Philistines. A second route they could go is the one that you see in the middle. That's the direct route to Beersheba and then to the Negev, the heart of the land of the Canaanites. It too has some military uh, installations that the Egyptians have established, but for the most part, they could go that route. Instead, the Lord takes them the third route, which is in the red. And as you can see, kind of reminds you of the GPS when it goes nuts, right? <laughs> You're going, no, no, that, that can't be right. <laughs> Recently, we were on a trip and my wife said, you need to go this way. I said, that's impossible. This is, this, I, I know the area. We need to go this way. That's the much more direct route. She goes, I don't know, but MapQuest or whatever you call that thing is telling us we need to go this route. So we got in a, a little discussion and I had to eat crow later because the reason the MapQuest said that was that there was a huge traffic jam. And so we sat for a while and yes, yes love it. <laughs> My Christianity just improved. <laughs> Going the third route? That makes no sense. You, you, Lord, you've got to be kidding, right? And notice, why does the Lord do this? What does he tell us? And he says, lest the people, verse 17, change their minds. I'm going to get them so lost they won't go back. No. Really? And, and also he says it so they can hone their military skills. I mean, are you serious? They've been in prison for, incar some incarcerated, but they've been in slavery for 400 years. They have suffered greatly. They've had their children slaughtered. And you're telling me they're gonna forget? Mm-hmm. And they sure do. In Numbers 14:4, they say we should choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Wow. <laughs> the Lord doesn't always lead us down the most obvious or convenient trail, does he? <laughs> in fact, the path of least resistance is usually not included in the spiritual map quest. Isaiah 55, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, say the Lord. 
For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You Israelites, we need some time for training and equipping. Militarily, yes. In fact, the text tells us that they left prepared for battle. In other words, they were put in groups, in squadrons, because there was an understanding they could be attacked. And as we're going to see next week, uh, they were almost attacked. But it's bigger than that. We need some time to recall, you Israelites, that I am God, that everything I have, I mean, everything you have is because I've given it to you. I am in charge. And so we go down this path that makes little sense. And I love verse 19. It just seems to be nestled in a side note, but it's more than a side note. And Moses took the bones of Joseph. Right? What in the world? I love Bergamon and his commentary on Exodus. He says, there is the danger of the no generation in the church. We, We dismiss the past and seek to live in a vacuum exclusively focused on the present. That's dangerous. And second, there's the danger that there's a preoccupation with the ancestors as we try to treat them as relics. But against both temptations, the, bo- the bones of Joseph are understood as an urgent, fervent bet on Israel's future with God. Hebrews states in 11.22, by faith, Joseph, at the end of his life, made mention of the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his burial. And in Joshua 24, and later Stephen will talk about this in Acts 7, in Joshua 24, the Israelites remember what they were told and they bury Joseph's body in Shechem. God keeps his word. Genesis 50, Joseph on his deathbed repeats this line twice, God will surely come to you. And 400 years later, that's exactly what God did. And picking up those bones is a reminder we serve a faithful God. It's a reminder God keeps his promises. He can't be unfaithful. (laughs) For 2 Timothy 2, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isn't that great? In this chaotic world we're living in, and some, I look across this room, the chaos is, you're not so focused on the chaos outside because it's internally, it's in the home, or it's, it's in personally. Be reminded God is faithful. And taking those bones and hauling that corpse around all those years as they wander through the wilderness, think about that. Yeah, I mean, everyone wants to carry the Ark of the Covenant. Well, not really. <laughs> you get struck dead, but that's another story. But, you know, you carry the Ark of the Covenant. Well, who wants to carry a bunch of bones around? Because those bones are a reminder, God is faithful. Hmm. Well, the text tells us in 20 and 21 that we, we have, again, this little precarious journey that doesn't seem to make sense. But even in the midst of that, in verse 21, the Lord was going before them. Isn't that great? I'm in charge. I'm going before you. And in fact, look what he does for them. He gives them a pillar of cloud to lead them on the way. I mean, you couldn't ask for a better GPS. And then he gives them a fire at night so it lights the sky up. Protection and direction, care, provision, all of that's depicted. Remember, 
someone shared with me, oh, I wish I had a pillar of cloud in my life. Just knowing God's will, you know, who do you marry? What job should I take? Wouldn't that be awesome? And I said, well, we, we really do. It's called the Holy Spirit. Hmm. John 14, he says, it lives within you. Those of you who know who Jesus Christ is your Savior, you have the dwelling of the Holy Spirit, which is a down payment, and it's a guarantee, but it's more than that. It's the counselor which guides and directs, and we have this as well. Those Israelites didn't have any of that. And they couldn't even get into the holy place, let alone the holy of holies, and we have access 24-7 into the very throne room of God. Wow. Well, you say, Hophidus, what do you do with all this? Well, according to Paul Reber, the professor of psychology at Northwestern University, your brain can, can store up to 2.5 million gigabytes. That's about 300 years worth of television. So, you say, okay, so let me give you three things to put in your memory bank, because you obviously can contain it, according to Paul Reber. Uh, first of these that's in your notes, while grace is free and our salvation cost us nothing, we must remember that our redemption was still costly. Every Passover, when that lamb was slain in blood, it's graphic. It was meant to be graphic because it's an illustration of what's going to happen at Golgotha when the Son of God, the Lamb of God, is slain. And so he it was paid in full by the very life of God's firstborn son. 1 Corinthians 6, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, which you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. In other words, why do you tinker with sin? Why do you keep going back to X, Y, or Z? Because God paid dear for your salvation to redeem you, to call you his own. We read later the wanderings of the Israelites, and you're like, I don't know why God just didn't zap them right off the bat. I mean, I'll be done. Let's, let's start all over. But isn't that sometimes us? <laughs> Thank the Lord he's gracious and he is faithful. Austin Miles, in an old hymn, this verse states, can a sinner know the cost? Was it worth a love like mine that a king to save the lost pays the great price with, with life divine? <laughs> Can a sinner know the cost? Wow. But it's not only the other, there's a second remembrance there in your notes. As followers of Christ, we must remember that all we have comes from the gracious hand of the Lord. Job 1, 21, naked I came from my mother's womb, naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. It's like Johnny playing in the toy box, sandbox, all right? And Ralph, I don't know, wants some of the toys, and Johnny goes, no, no, those are my toys. Don't you touch those. When actually, Johnny, I hate to tell you, those toys were bought by your father. He owns them. In fact, he could sell them at the next garage sale. Right? So, uh, one theologian says there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. Let me read that again. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. 
Those Israelites, as they leave Egypt, God says, let me remind you a couple things. Everything's mine. I brought you out. I'm the one who's going to take care of you. And, and we, we have a covenantal relationship. So if you think you're going to get away with something, I will deal with it because I am sovereign. I am in charge. And the third reminder in your notes, the Lord's leading may not make human sense. Hmm. I didn't have to tell some of you that this morning. Yeah, yeah, I know. Talked with one of you this morning. Said, yeah, we'll, we've, we're grieving. We've got physical difficulties, but we know God is in charge. That's Hebrews 13. I will never leave you or forsake you so that we can say with confidence, we sometimes, I hear the first part, I don't hear the second. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what anyone can do to me. Oh, they're gonna meet the Amalekites, the Israelites. Then they're gonna meet some of the Canaanites and the Parasites. The Lord says, don't worry. I got it all in charge. I, I'm the one who's gonna lead you. Paul David Tripp has a book on poetry that is just dynamite. And I'm not a big poet, but I, I, listen to this. I, I just love it. He writes, you choose the difficult thing, referring to God. You choose this unexpected moment. You planned this unplanned season. You decided to lead me into the mystery. You ordained the trial I'm now in. You led into the valley. You led me beyond the borders of my understanding, wisdom, maturity, and strength. You choose the difficult thing. You choose it. It would be a humbling thing, a convicting thing, a transforming thing. You chose to trouble my normal sources of hope so that I would find hope in you. I do not need to doubt, fear, panic, hide, run, accuse, or rebel because you did not only choose this difficult thing, you chose me. And because you chose me, I know you will not abandon me you will complete everything for me because you have chosen to do so. Hmm. You Israelites, the Lord says, I have chosen you. And if you know Jesus Christ is your savior this morning, he says he's chosen you, according to Ephesians 1. If you don't know Christ is your savior, he's saying anyone who calls upon my name will be saved. Come bask in the presence of a God who is faithful, a God who loves dearly, a God who cares intimately, and a God who provides. Remember, our redemption was costly. Remember, all that we have is his. And remember, our Lord knows what is best. Father, it's transition phase in Ephesians, excuse me, in Exodus 13 as we move from Egypt and now journey to the wilderness and, and head to the Red Sea first. We're reminded of some very important lessons that you, O oh God, are in charge. That you, O oh God, control all things and that all that we have belongs to you. And Father, we confess as a people, and personally at times we so want to grab onto a portion of our soul and say, no, no, this is mine. You can have all this, but this is mine. No, I, I, I don't want to bend here. And yet you're saying all of this is yours, and indeed it is. 
thank you that this mighty hand that brought those Israelites out of Egypt is the same mighty hand that brought us who were enslaved to sin. And we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name.